0: Well, we're going to continue in First Peter, wrap up First Peter 1 and start in First Peter chapter two this morning. So if you want to join me there in your Bibles, uh, this morning we're going to talk a bit about our eternal nature uh, and what growth in that looks like. Uh, Peter, having come thus far, has established our value and the circumstances of our salvation or our redemption and what it took to save us, to redeem us. And now he moves on to talk about the eternal nature that we now have been born into. And in talking about this, he brings our attention to a few things that are critical marks of that nature. Um, and I'm going to list some of those things off for you. He, he talks about being de- having devoted love for our fellow Christians. He talks about obedience for growth. He talks about abandonment of evil ways and of past life. And, and number four, he talks about desiring the word of God. And desiring spiritual growth. And so we're going to hit on those things, those aspects of our new nature, our eternal nature in Christ this morning as we read uh, through the end of chapter 1 and into verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 2. But all of these things are held up in light of the source of our eternal being, which is the Word of God itself, which we're going to read about in and of itself is that eternal source this morning. So it's exciting stuff, it's good stuff. Um, In reading this and in studying this, uh, in preparation for sharing with you this morning, uh, it's exciting. It's, it's really empowering. It's one of those uh, studies that really leaves you feeling like, man, uh, there's so much possibility. There's so much we can do and so much God wants to do in and through us. Uh, it's exciting. And so I'm going to attempt to be patient with myself and work through this and not steal my own thunder because I'm kind of excited about all the things that God is showing us this morning. So please join me as we pray in opening God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Uh, For this letter that Peter wrote so long ago, Lord, that it's so relevant and needful for us today. And Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would humble our hearts before you. Help us to receive it, and not only to receive it, but to act on it. That it would truly take hold in our lives. And, And Lord, I know that you know each individual heart here, each person here, you know exactly where we're at. You see each life, and you know what we need at this moment. You know how we need to grow, how we need to be stretched. You also know if we need comfort. And Lord, I pray that you would meet each person by your spirit in the way only you can do, and that you would do your work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's read together, picking up in verse 22, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. It says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as a flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel, was preached to you. So we're going to stop there before we get into chapter 2 and go through that. So it starts off, it says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, or as the NIV puts it, which is more of a paraphrased version, The uh, um, just to bring some clarification to the different versions because I know some of us read different ones. Uh, the King James and the New King James version are based on a word-for-word translation. Uh, the NIV is based on more of a paraphrase translation, which basically the goal of that was to take the thought as accurately as possible and translate it for our understanding in the English language. Because the problem that we came across is, when you translate things word for word, we didn't always have an English equivalent to the Greek or the Hebrew words. Or, uh, you know, there wasn't just, there wasn't, a, we have like, for instance, love. We're going to talk about that this morning. We have one word for love and we kind of throw it around in many different meanings and ways. Versus uh, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, there's many words for love. And so um, the NIV, uh, sometimes I'll pull in some different translations to help bring clarity to what's meant uh, because there isn't always just a nice, clean English translation word for word. And so sometimes the NIV is helpful because it translates the thought. So just a little side note there on some of the different translations. So since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, or as the NIV puts it, now that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. So first, thing that stood out to me that I want to bring your attention to is um, in following the inductive Bible study method, one of the things you learn to do when you read God's Word is you ask some questions. And I want to encourage you, when you read God's Word, don't just read it for reading's sake, but s- truly study it. And, and when you read through it, it really helps to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. In other words, you're reading through it and you go, Who is he talking about? What did he just say? And how, how are we supposed to do this? You start asking those questions and amazing how it really brings to focus what's being said here. So in reading through just this first part, he says, who has purified their own soul?" He says, you and I have purified our own souls. That indicates we have a pretty big part to play when it comes to purification or sanctification. Remember we talked about two aspects of sanctification. Remember that? There was the first one which was, our standing before God, our positional sanctification, when we are saved, when we receive salvation, we are seen as sanctified, holy, pure before God from a judgment standpoint. But then there's that process of sanctification. And that is something we have a big part to play in. We have a very active role in that, it says here. It says, Since you have purified your souls, this very assumptive statement. He's speaking to those who are truly already believers and are living out their faith. And how is this purification happening. It says, in obeying the truth. So through obedience. Through obedience is how the sanctification process is being activated and working. turns out obedience has a sanctifying effect, has a purifying effect in our lives. When we obey God, when we obey His Word, it actually works something in us. It purifies us, as it says here. It has this effect and it's critical to spiritual growth. Notice it doesn't say having purified your souls in knowing about the truth. It doesn't say that, does it? It says in obeying the truth. It actually can be very harmful to our spiritual health to take in and to take in and to receive and receive and do nothing with it. Because then we grow numb and cold, don't we? We get used to hearing it and doing nothing about it. And it gets harder and harder for it to have that effect on our lives. But the reverse is true. When we immediately act upon God's word, it's amazing what kind of growth that initiates. You know, and this aspect of obedience is really, as we read through, if you read through the chapter, and I encourage you to do this in getting the whole big bird's eye picture of what Peter is saying, if we read back through, remember we talked about godly conduct. We talked about holy living. And this is just simply a, an expansion upon that. It's not that we do good works for good work's sake. It's actually obedience to someone and something in particular. You know, it's like a servant who uh, on a hot day wants to serve his master and says, you know, I'm going to bless my master. And so he goes in and gets a boiling hot cup of coffee and his master's out there, you know, working in the yard, all hot and sweaty, and he brings him a hot cup of tea or coffee. you think he's very blessed by that? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> What do you think you want? Probably an ice cold cup of lemonade or something. But it would have helped if that servant actually bothered to ask his master what he actually wanted of him. Not just go out and do our version of what we think pleases God. And sometimes we do that. We go out and we do these good works for good works sake. And we go, look, I'm pleasing God. And we're doing it our way. Does that really please God? Not really, actually. Not really. That's not what God's looking for, is it? He's looking for obedience this godly conduct isn't just random godly conduct. If you remember, we read before what well, we were redeemed from. What do he say we were redeemed from? Those aimless works, those aimless traditions of our fathers. We weren't redeemed so that we could go out and just kind of do good works all over again just for good work's sake. We were meant to be obedient. That conduct was meant to have direction and purpose. And is beguided guided by God the Father and by his word. So pretty cool how he builds on this. Something that we really need to pay close attention to. You know, it's uh, funny. This last week, um, I I learned something new. uh, That Christians are a lot like laptop batteries. It's true. You didn't know that? Let me tell you how. I was uh, studying and working on my laptop. And I got this little warning that popped up. And it was warning me that I was ruining my laptop battery. Because I was constantly charging it. And as I, was, I always kept it kind of plugged in. I'd maybe drain the battery 10-15% and I'd plug it back in. And it was saying, no, you've got... The morning essentially said, you need to use up the battery and then recharge it. And use up the battery and then recharge it in order for your battery to last like it's supposed to. But when you just kind of keep filling it up, it actually will ruin the battery and you'll shorten the battery life. Oh, well, that's interesting. I never knew that. But you know what? We as Christians are very similar. You know, we come in here and we study and we get filled and we get filled and we get filled again and we get filled again. And what happens when we don't go out and actually act on it? We don't actually do it. You know, we're the same way. We don't get filled just to get filled. What happens we come in here with a full cup? How can you add more to a full cup? You can't. We need to go empty ourselves. We need to go pass it on. We need to go give it out and then come back and be refreshed and filled again. That's what we're meant to do as Christians. We're supposed to receive and then walk in it. We're supposed to take and, and, and receive and grow and receive that word, that word, that milk, as we're going to read later, or that meat. And then we're supposed to go use it, go do something with it, and then come back for more. Not just kind of settle into it and go, okay, yeah, just keep piling it on. Can I get a bigger plate or another plate maybe? No, that's not what we're supposed to do. And it turns out it's actually very counterproductive for our faith. It's very damaging to our faith. When we come in here, come to church, or we read God's Word and we get so comfortable and casual with it. We're used to just reading it and not having to do anything about it. There's a big danger in that. A very very big danger in that. And and be warned. We're meant to be warned of that danger. We get to that place where we're like Laodicea in Revelation. Something that God was not pleased with, was he? What did he say he would do with those Christians? Spew them out of his mouth. It disgusts God. It disgusts Him. And so we need to be warned in this. Obedience has a very critical part to play, but it's an exciting part to play. I tell you, some of the most exciting times in my walk with the Lord are the times that I'm obeying. I'm, I'm following the Lord's direction. I'm walking in it, and I'm seeing Him use me. And man, it's just exciting, isn't it? How many of you have ever been there? You know what I'm talking about. You see God uh, calling you to something, you actually do it, and then God works, and you go, man, that was awesome, I want to do it again. And then you see also the areas where you're weak. You go, you know, what? I wasn't well studied in this, or I didn't understand that. And so it spurs you on to go study and fill up some more, doesn't it? It's amazing how it's a critical part of our lives. You know, you can have the freshest, purest water pouring into a pool, but what happens if that pool has no outlet? It becomes stagnant and stinky and nasty. And it also happens to breed one of the most annoying creatures in all of God's green earth, a mosquito. <laughs> and this is fresh, you can have the freshest, most delicious, pure water going into it. But what happens? What's the end result if there's no outlet? It becomes nasty, it becomes stagnant, it becomes bad. In the same way, we as Christians, we've got to have that outlet. We've got to have that water flowing through us. We have the living water, don't we? We have that eternal living water. It's it's meant to overflow in others around us for us to pass the cups out, pass it on. We have to have that outlet. <clears throat> you know, um, it made me think of how funny it would be if in my own family or if in our families we act the same way as many times we as Christians act in the church or in our walk with the Lord. You know, where we get to so used to hearing God's word or knowing God's word and yet not really doing it. Uh, you know, it'd, it'd be kind of like if I said to Laura here, I, said, I told her to go clean the bathroom. I said, Laura, go, can you please go clean the bathroom? And then <clears throat> a couple hours goes by, she comes back to me. I said, Guess what, Dad? I memorized what you said. You said, Laura, please go clean the bathroom. Aren't you proud of me? Like, well, not really. Kind of missed the point. And then you goes, well, well, no, but I'm going to have my friends over and we're going to study about what it would be like if we actually cleaned the bathroom. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> no, not really. How about you just do it? <laughs> but I can say it in Greek and Hebrew. <laughs> no, you're missing the point. God's Word is meant to be acted upon. It's meant to spur obedience. As it says... In Philippians two twelve, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know, sometimes this is a verse for confusion, but I think it's very clear. You know, yes, we don't we don't work our own salvation. We don't accomplish our own salvation, that's not what's being talked about. Notice the words work out in there. Spiritual exercise. Spiritual exercise. You know, if you haven't exercised in a while and then you go out and exercise, you kinda discover muscles you didn't know you had, huh? It kinda hurts. kind of painful, you're sore, but you know what, you realize those muscles are there, you're like, whoa, I have some of those. That's kind of cool. You know, and when you obey, it's kind of like that. You suddenly, God shows you the gifts He's given you. He shows you how He does have a purpose for your life. It becomes exciting. The possibilities suddenly start opening up. And, and it's so neat how our walk with the Lord is like that. When we work out spiritually, you know, uh, it's, it's just, it would be so ridiculous if we If we talk to somebody and they said, "You know, I have this amazing new workout program. I'm so excited. I'm going to get in shape. It's going to be amazing. Here's my plan. I'm going to sit down every night and watch a workout video. It's going to be awesome. I'm just going to, I'm going to watch P90X over and over again, and I'm going to get buff and in shape." No, that's ridiculous. Of course, you're not going to get in shape. At some point, you've got to get up and you've got to actually exercise yourself. It's not enough to watch others do it. We've got to do it ourselves. Now, the Bible is filled with clear instruction that does not require special revelation. And so, when it comes to obedience, sometimes we're waiting, for, we're waiting for that amazing writing in the sky, or we're waiting for God to swoop down out of heaven and hit us upside the head and say, do this, and give us something really specific. But you know, God's Word, I found, is full of commands, isn't it? It's full of instruction for us, already given, isn't it? You know, we're told to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So then, should we not commit to fulfilling our promises and obligations? Shouldn't that affect how we conduct ourselves and our work ethic and in what we do? Do we have to seek God as to whether we have to do those things? You know, um, God's Word also says that we're called to make disciples of all nations. In Matthew 28:19, He says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's something we know. We're given that command. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Pursue peace and, and with all people in holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. More instruction in First Thessalonians 5. A lot of great instruction in there. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Always pursue what is good for both yourselves and others. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. See, we have a lot of things we can take action on, don't we? We don't have to sit around and wait for some special revelation or for some uh, miraculous uh, vision. We have clear things that we can act upon. And I want to end on this point uh, with a, a, a note from Oswald Chambers' devotional. Um, uh, my wife sent this to me the other day, and it was really fitting. And he goes off an excerpt in John 7:17, 7, speaking about obedience. Where it says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. And how many have read Oswald Chambers? Anybody? He's pretty hard hitting, isn't he? He doesn't pull any punches. He's pretty tough. Well, in usual form, he talks about obedience here, and I'm just going to read a quote from his devotional and says, The golden rule for understanding spirituality is not intellect, but obedience. If a man wants scientific knowledge, intellectual curiosity is his guide. But if he wants insight into what Jesus Christ teaches, he can only get it by obedience. If things are dark to me, then I may be sure that there might be something I will not do. Intellectual darkness comes through ignorance, but spiritual darkness comes because of something I do not intend to obey. No man ever receives a word from God without instantly being put to the test over it thought that was really challenging, and that is so true. I found that to be true in my life. We disobey and then wonder why we don't go on spiritually. But God's word says, If when you come to the altar, says Jesus, there you remember your brother hath against you, don't say another word to me, but go out and put that thing right. The teachings of Jesus hits us where we live. We cannot stand as humbugs before him for one second. He educates us down to the scruple. The Spirit of God unearths the spirit of self-vindication and he makes us sensitive to the things we never thought of before. When Jesus brings a thing home by his word, don't shirk it. If you do, you will become a religious humbug. Watch the things you shrug your shoulders over and you will know why you do not go on spiritually. Pretty challenging words. Pretty challenging words about how critical obedience is to not only growing spiritually but truly hearing from God and continuing to hear from God. You know, <clears throat> this is one of those things that I think many times can be the mark of a young believer. But over time, we see many times this, this is the downfall of the, of the seasoned Christian where they get comfortable, we get complacent and we kind of miss opportunities and we kind of shirk it off. And, you, you know, you see a young believer who's just so on fire, man, they will do anything for the Lord and that's something we can learn from. That's something we could stand to hold on to and seek after. And we're going to read later on How Peter is exhorting us to seek after this purposefully. So the the implication here is that if we are attempting to come to God to fellowship with Him, and speaking of the reference Oswald Chambers gave, talking about how Jesus had said, uh, "I'm going to read the verses to you real quick." He says, "Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, go your way, and first be reconciled to your brother." And then come and offer your gift. In other words, if you're going to come to me in fellowship or you're going to come to communion with me and hear from me and yet you haven't made something right, you haven't obeyed something on something, you haven't, you haven't resolved a problem, go out and take care of it. Go take action on it. Again, this is something you already know you're supposed to do. I've already commanded you in this. I've instructed you in this. Go obey first and then come back and let's make progress together. Let's grow together. There are several other examples of this I'm just going to briefly touch on as we move on. Um, you know, It's interesting in 1 Peter 3.7, he talks about husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And so it's an interesting note there that our prayers are hindered when we're not obeying in this manner. And we get these clues throughout Scripture where obedience hinders our, our walk with the Lord very directly. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So again, we're exhorted that we have a very active role to play in this purification process. And how do we do it? Is it just on our own strength? No, no. You know, in Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And as it says right here in 1 Peter It says, through the spirit of truth. And Romans 8 also talks about walking in the spirit. I'm not going to get into it this morning. We don't have time. But Romans 8 spends a lot of time contrasting walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit, doesn't it? If you're familiar with that chapter, it talks a lot about those who walk in the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. But those who walk in the flesh, the things of the flesh. It talks about how being carnally minded is death, but being spiritually minded is life and peace. And there's this constant back and forth of the benefit of walking in the Spirit, because that is the source. That's like that living water that flows in, that we feed on, that we utilize, that empowers us to, to will and to do for His good pleasure. That we're not, yes, we have a play, a role to play, we have an active role, we, we need, we do need to act out, we need to obey, but we're not on our own in this. Well, it's not on our own power. The Spirit is the power. As Jesus called him, the Spirit of truth. He is the one who speaks that truth into us, empowers us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in reading on, moving on from obedience, obedience being one of the key marks, as we talked about in the beginning, this being one of the key marks of our new nature, our new eternal nature in Christ, where, where we're walking now in the Spirit. We're born again, as we read this is what it looks like. Obedience being a very key factor. So reading on, it says, "In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart." You know, reading this, we remember Jesus's words when he was here on earth. What did he say? In saying how the world will know we are his disciples, if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give to you that if you love one, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A key phrase in here would be, as I have loved you. How do we love? As Jesus loved. We have an example. And we're going to read about that a little bit as we qualify this. Peter goes on to qualify this in greater detail. But the source of this love is is God himself. 1 John 4, 7, a song I remember learning as a child in Sunday school. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. But he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Surely if we're ever going to talk about spiritual growth and the spiritual walk and our eternal nature, we cannot, we cannot do that without talking about love. God himself it being love and being children of God and, and, and being called to walk in his character and likeness, Love is that encompassing blanket that sort of brings it all together. And knowing that if we just walk in love, many times we'll automatically do all the little things, won't we? It's like that blanket commandment that Jesus said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the commandments can be hung on these two things. If you do these two things, you'll pretty much cover it. And, and even more, that, more so, even beyond so Peter goes on, let's read further here in First Peter. He goes on to qualify this love in greater detail. And it sounds like he's repeating himself a little bit. He talks about sincere love, which means without hypocrisy, without pretense. It's the real thing. So he's saying, since you have this sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently and with a pure heart. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is where the rubber meets the road. He goes on in verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Love is an action. Sincere love is an action. And he says, love fervently and with a pure heart. He gives us two Additional qualifiers here, qualifiers here, first of all, he says, sincerely, in other words, let it be true. Um, let it be non-hypocritical, but let it be fervent. Let it be with purposeful intensity that you love one another. As the body of Christ, here we are. Do we love one another that way? Are we fiercely loyal to one another? Do we always know we have each other's back? That when someone is down or hurting or in need, in a very practical sense, do we rush to each other's aid? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to obey in. That's what love looks like. Fervently and pure. Pure meaning unmixed with any other matter. Being thus and no other. Free from variances, weakens weaknesses, or pollutants. That's what kind of love we're supposed to have. Truly pure. It's and this purity and this sincerity really speaks much of our motivation, why we do what we do. It's free from ulterior motives. Free from ulterior motives. You know, it reminds me of a time when uh, I came home, and uh, I was met by all my lovely girls and my beautiful wife, and they're all dressed up and looking nice, and the house was clean, and I think they had dinner ready, and I was just so blessed. And then, they asked me for the kitties. <laughs> um, ulterior motives. Uh, ulterior motives. Here, I thought they loved me. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, I know they do. I have no doubt. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, actually. It's pretty funny. But our love for one another is meant to be a pure motive in heart. We're sincerely doing it expecting nothing in return, love has no expectation of, of reward or repayment. It has nothing to do with what we get out of it. It has everything to do with what we're giving, with how we can contribute, with what we can do for one another. Another homework for you, First Corinthians 13. The love chapter, very well known. Go read through it again. Remind yourself what love looks like and how it should be practically expressed in our lives. 1 Corinthians 13. We're not going to read it this morning. But this gives us a real picture of love in great detail. And just like faith in God, true love leaves clues. There is evidence. You know, so moving on, as I mentioned, Peter appears to repeat himself a little bit here because he talks about them having sincere love. And then he goes on to tell them to love. And it seems like it's a bit redundant, but it's interesting when we go back to the root words, he's actually using two different words for love here, and this is one of those places where we talked about where the English doesn't exactly do the original language justice because we don't have four or five words for love; we have one, and uh, at least one that we commonly use. And so, it helps to dig in a little deeper and understand what Peter's actually talking here. He's not talking about the same kinds of love. He's talking when he first mentions the sincere love that they have currently. He's actually contrasting it with the love he's telling them to have when he moves on and talks about the fervent love and the pure love. This first love he talks about, insincere love of the brethren, is Philadelphia. It's that brotherly love, uh, that that love that really is sort of a genuine bond of friendship, but it really is based on and has everything to do with sort of a commonality, and in this case, commonality in the spirit of Christ. Um, it's it's having camaraderie. It's hey, we get along. We have some things that we agree upon. So you know, there's this friendship, this brotherly love that goes on there. But then he contrasts that and compares it with Agapeo, which is the love he goes on to speak of them having that's supposed to be fervent and pure. This love <clears throat> means more, much more broadly embracing, it says, to love much in a moral or social sense. It is a much wider, um, encompassing love that means the deliberate assent of the will as a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. And so this love is that he's telling them to have, is not just because we have common ground. It's not just because we can get along on some things. This love is a deliberate act of the will. It's a decision we make. It's agape. Or agapeo in this case. is actually agapeo comes from the root word agape, which is the love of God itself. That love that is unconditional. That love that is truly pure. That's the love he's talking about here. And agapeo is, is very contrasted also with phileo, a phileo is sort of a superficial, affectionate love, an emotionally based, emotionally charged love as a matter of sentiment or feeling versus this love that is a deliberate assent of your will and a matter of principle, duty, or propriety. You know, we see a lot of love stories in today's society, don't we? We see a lot of movies about it. see it in the news and in the media where people fall in love. It sounds like a pit. You just kind of walk along and you fall into it. <laughs> Doesn't sound good. Who wants to fall in that? You know what? This kind of love isn't a love you fall in. It's a love you walk in. It's a choice that you make. It's something that doesn't, it's not something that just happens to you. It's not a it's not feeling. <clears throat> you make a deliberate decision to love somebody, to love and take that action that is love. And you know what's really cool and really interesting, and I found, and I believe it's also very scripturally supported is that when you lead your heart rather than follow your heart, unlike Disney would have you believe, when you lead your heart instead of follow it, many times that phileo kind of follows, doesn't it? You find that the feelings and the heart and the emotion begins to back it up and reinforce it. And God has called us to lead our hearts, not to follow them. What does Scripture say about our hearts? they are deceitfully wicked and who can know it? That doesn't sound like something I want to follow. Not as, a, not as a Christian. True love is a choice. It's truly a deliberate, sacrificial choice. Something we decide to do regardless of what that other person is or is acting like. We must adopt the love of God is what we really have to do, isn't it? It can't be our own. This isn't our love. We don't have it or manufacture it ourselves. It's the love of God. So reading on in verse 23 through 25, please join me as we now talk about the next, the next portion here. So we see obedience, we see love, these two aspects of our character and our new eternal nature in Christ. And he goes on to expound that on that nature. He says, in verse 23, "...having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is his grass, and the glory of man as a flower of the grass. The grass withers, and his flower falls away." But the word of the Lord endures forever. This is a quote from Isaiah 40:6 through8, where he's talking about how temporary man is in light of God's word. But Peter is now reminding us of our eternal nature in these words. He's saying, "Now you've been born not in an earthly sense, not in a temporal sense, not in this brief passing sense, but now you are of eternal nature. So now what you do echoes in eternity, and you should have that mindset and that purpose. The words of the gospel message are the very same words of God that do not fail ever. He says, this word which by the gospel was preached to you. So he's comparing the word of God which lasts last forever, he's comparing the incorruptible seed of which we're born with the gospel message that was preached to them that initiates this very change, this very rebirth is initiated by the word itself that is eternal and unending and cannot fail some of my favorite words about, or about the Word of God. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 10. Starting in verse 10. I love this passage because it speaks of the faithfulness of God's Word. And quite honestly, it gives me a lot of confidence in, in what I'm doing this morning and sharing God's Word with you. Because I know if I stick to God's Word, I can't, I can't screw it up. As long as I read God's Word, I know that part will have an effect. So if anything else, just listen to that, Okay. But it says, Isaiah 55.10, I love these, this passage. It says, As the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return there, but it waters the earth it makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please and shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And what's even more mind-blowing and expanding on This word is that Jesus himself is a living, breathing word of God. In John 1.1, without getting into too much depth, because this is a whole study in and of itself, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What's interesting is the word used here in speaking in verse 23, of the word of God which lives and abides forever, the word also used in John 1.1, it's the same Greek word, it's logos. Or logos, depending on how you pronounce it. And that word is compared throughout Scripture consistently that Jesus came to be that living, breathing example of what the Word of God is, that it's powerful, that it ac- always accomplishes what it's set forth to do. So we're going to read on now in chapter 2 and continuing our journey in our eternal nature, talking now a little bit about spiritual growth. So, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1 laying aside all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, evil speaking being like defamation or backbiting, uh, gossip, laying all those things aside, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good or gracious. You know, having, having talked about these other two marks of eternal nature, love and obedience, and these things, and how we're born into it. He's now talking about two other things that we're going to cover this morning. First of all, he's talking about laying aside. He says, therefore, because of this eternal uh, gospel that was preached to you, and therefore, because of this incorruptible seed of which you were born, this eternal nature you now have, abandon, lay aside these works of the flesh, these marks, these traits of your earthly life. Of, you, of your corruptible life you had before. This hypocrisy and deceit and envy. Lay this stuff aside. So he's talking about two things here. First of all, laying these things aside. And then second of all, desiring God's word. Seeking and pursuing the word of God and for spiritual growth. These things we first must understand go hand in hand. These things are inseparable. You can't hold on to them both and there's a danger in pursuing just one. James 3, 8-12 talks a little bit about this. It says, No man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. But with it, with it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Does a spring breathe forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And so he's saying, listen, as a Christian, you shouldn't be like the world and like Christ. That's not even possible. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's complete oxymoron. You abandon one for the other. You let go of one to take hold of another. You can't hold them both. You can't sit on the fence. It's not possible. And it should not be so. Some Christians try to walk that line, don't they? We try to walk that line sometimes. We try and find that balance. No. It's, it's an abandonment of one. It's a pursuit of the other. Our attempt at giving up a sinful behavior without pursuing and craving God's word is, <clears throat> and filling that void within is very dangerous. Um, we see a parable that Jesus talked about that I think illustrates this really well. What happens when we, in our own flesh, in our own power and capability, which we saw... In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were doing. They had their traditions, they had their laws they followed, right? They had all these ways to please God. But he talked to them about the danger of going out yourself and simply attempting to clean up your life without pursuing and craving the word of God, without having that power of having that new pursuit. In Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the parable of the unclean spirit. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he says, he goes through dry places seeking rest and he finds none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept, empty, and put in order. And then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. And he's speaking to those who are completely built up in their own religiosity, their own own self-centered, self-dependent capability. That's what he's speaking to. And here is the danger. We can't, it's, it's not enough to just try and not do bad things. We have to pursue good things. We will always return to the vomit. We will always return to those bad behaviors and those old ways if we don't have something to fill that void with. If we aren't pursuing, if we aren't getting rid of that stuff and then now taking hold of something else, standing there with empty hands that we crave to fill. Standing with a void that has to be filled. And so one of the best ways to pursue godliness, to grow and to not do evil, is simply pursue good. By default, you won't have time for that. You won't, have, you won't have any space for that. If you fill your life with good things, with pursuing God, with studying His Word, with ministering to others, you won't have time to get into trouble. You won't have time to be distracted and caught up in the things that used to entertain you, the things that used to fill your mind and heart. So he says, desire The milk of the word. This word desire is interesting. It means to yearn or intensely crave the possession of, earnestly long after. But what's cool about how this is phrased is you notice that he phrases it as an instructive command. He doesn't say, I hope that you desire the word. Or he doesn't say, pray or hope that you will desire the word. He says, desire the word. He commands us just like the love is an action and a choice. It says, desire the milk of the word. It says, make that choice to desire the things of God. And sometimes it comes naturally, doesn't it? Sometimes we just crave it and we love it and we're after it. But there's other times, isn't there, where we're feeling kind of dry. We don't really feel like pursuing God. You ever felt that? I felt that. You don't really feel like reading the word and craving the word and studying it again. And that's where we have to walk in this. Where Peter tells us, desire it. Choose to desire it. Choose to earnestly and intensely crave it as a possession. It's not simply a feeling. Just like that love we talked about, it's not simply a feeling. It's something we choose. And how do newborn babies desire milk? Now, if you've ever had a baby, I have a little experience with this. Had one or two or five. Um, I've noticed that they don't just desire milk once a week. Or even once a day, for that matter. Or once a night, for that matter. <laughs> they desire it many times, don't they? All the time. They, and especially in the early stages, they're just constantly needing it and wanting it and they want nothing else. And you know what? That fit makes everything all better. Doesn't matter what's wrong, a little milk and they're happy. You know, and that's how we're supposed to be. Just like that. Where we can't we're constantly craving it. We get a little bit, we want more. There's no end to it. And what's interesting is it feeds on itself when we get more, and that just makes us want more. And that's how we're supposed to be in desiring God's Word. You know, and remember, what this is talking about here is not that we remain spiritual babies, but that we have that characteristic of constant craving as a new believer. That we seek hard after it, and we never let go of that. We never lose sight of that. This isn't saying that we stay spiritually immature. But we take this certain characteristic of desiring the milk of God's word with fervency and with with necessity that we learn from this. And I'd like to urge you this morning to consider that to possess the word of God as a Christian is not merely to know it. And this word possession and what it's talking about here is having something that's fully integrated into your life. You become that living word of God in following Jesus Christ himself. As the saying goes, you are what you eat. That's true spiritually as well. And so in conclusion, therefore he says, taste and see that the Lord is so good. In other words, experience for yourself that the Lord, He is good. His ways are good. His commands are for good. He indeed came to give us life and that more abundantly. To follow in these things is not drudgery. It is indeed good. It is the best meal of a life you could possibly have. So I encourage you taste and see that the Lord is good. Pursue Him with a whole heart. Love one another fervently. Obey the commands. Walk in these things. Do your homework. Don't just come here. And you'll be amazed at what God will do in your life. When you step out a little bit, when you obey. And that may be a calling that you've been ignoring for a while. That may be just a real practical step of obedience and godly living. Uh, that may be just stepping up and serving in some capacity and just testing the waters and seeing what God will call you to because you know that there's no such thing as dead weight in the body of Christ. That each person has a purpose and a place, a role to fill. So it may mean something different for many of us. But I encourage you, walk in obedience and you'll be amazed at how God continues to fill that cup. How God continues to to grow you up spiritually. And your your walk will come alive. Your walk will come alive. So let's pray and thank the Lord for His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, I do thank You that Your Word truly does satisfy, that it is what we need. Lord, I thank You that when we obey, You continue to use us. Lord, in our feeble attempts, many times we we don't do it perfect, We, we mess up but what you're looking for is the effort. You're not looking for someone who's got it all figured out, who's perfect. You're just looking for someone who's willing, someone who will walk. Lord, make us doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, help us to be excited and fervent in our love. Help us to make these conscious choices and then in doing so to see the exciting fulfillment of the emotion and and the passion that follows and so, Lord, I look forward to the good things you have in store for each person this morning. I pray for your blessing on your word. May it, as you, as we read this morning, may it accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. May it not return void as you promise. In Jesus' name, amen.